Hi, it's Paul. I just wanted to let you know that we recorded this interview approximately 200 years ago before the coronavirus pandemic shutdown began. So, setting aside this introduction, you won't hear a single mention of COVID-19 in this episode. But the information in the interview is more relevant than ever. We talk about voting rights and expanded voter access. Many public health experts predict that we could be in for a resurgence of coronavirus this fall. And if that's the case, we'll need to make sure that as many Americans can vote as possible and that they can vote in the safest way possible. So this episode provides a good baseline of information on voter access, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to this topic more in the months to come. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Paul Constant. I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. I just finished reading this uh, amazing new book uh, called The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. It's a great book. It reads very quickly. It's packed with information about uh, the history of the war on voting and also how we can fix the system so that future generations don't have to keep fighting this fight. It's written by Tom Hartman, who's a New York Times bestselling author, and he's also a talk show host, the host of the Tom Hartman program and other shows. And I'm excited to talk to him about his book. Hey, I'm Tom Hartman. I'm a nationally syndicated talk show host, New York Times bestselling author. And my new book is The Hidden History of the War on Voting. The first thing I wanted to ask you is one of the things that struck me about this book is you go pretty directly at the Republican Party out of the gate, uh, whereas it feels like uh, some more sales-conscious editors might ask you to take a more bipartisan approach. And I was wondering if you could talk about the decision to, to point a finger directly at the Republican Party. When I first uh, pitched the book to BK, I suggested that it should be called The Hidden History of the Republican War on Voting. <laughs> and their response was, uh, that is going to seem too partisan. And my response was, please identify for me any state in the United States where Democrats are trying to make it harder to vote or have since 1965, you know, when the Voting Rights Act and, and the Civil Rights Acts were passed by a Democratic legislature and a Democratic president. And they were unable to. I mean, there, there literally is no Democratic war on voting. Democrats have been trying ever since the 60s to open up the voting process in the United States for, you know, to people who have been historically kept from voting, largely African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, students, elderly people, and poor people, and former prisoners. And, you know, the Republicans, on the other hand, are trying to prevent all of all of those categories of people from voting. It's it's become, uh, frankly, their principal electoral vehicle. George W. Bush would never have gotten within 500 votes of winning Florida if his brother hadn't thrown 90,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls in the previous year uh, by using the Texas felon list that George had given to Jeb. Um, uh, Donald Trump never would have beat Hillary Clinton by 77,000 votes in four states if uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania had not each thrown more than 200,000 people off the voting rolls, majority of them people of color, in the six months to a year before the election. This is the new uh, principal strategy of the Republican Party. And, you know, they took it to the Supreme Court to defend it in the case of Ohio and the Husted case three years ago. And the Supreme Court said, fine with us. Go ahead. Throw people off the voting rolls. There is no right to vote in the Constitution. You know, I mean, look at uh, Georgia. The whole country learned about this in the two years prior to the election in 2018. Brian Kemp, the secretary of state who was running for governor, 
through 580,000 African-Americans out at the voting rolls. Greg Palace got that list, the investigative reporter for the BBC, turned it over to the company that does uh, mail address verification for Amazon. Uh, they ran all 580,000 names and they found 343,000 people in uh, Georgia who had never moved from their houses and should have still been on the, on the voting rolls, including Martin Luther King's cousin. Without that, and, and Stacey Abrams, uh, you know, Brian Kemp won that election by 51,000 votes um, after having, you know, thrown over 300, over 300,000 people off the voting rolls who he never should have thrown off the voting rolls. And what's amazing is that the 14th Amendment, second section of the 14th Amendment says that if a state engages in voter suppression, they will lose representation in the House of Representatives in proportion to the uh, number of people that they've prevented from voting. Um, Georgia in 2018 prevented over 300,000 people who are verified citizens of Georgia from voting. That's more than one member of Congress. I mean, Georgia should have lost a member of the House of Representatives as a consequence of that. It's just remarkable what's going on. To the last point about Georgia, who enforces that? How does that how does that mechanism work? Well, each each state runs their own voting. This is you know part of the the federalism of the founders. It's in the Constitution. So the state of Georgia runs and administers their own elections and maintains their own list of registered voters and determines who and how the vote will be counted and who will be allowed to vote and who won't. And the official in the state who is ultimately responsible for all of that is the secretary of state. And in this case, that was Brian Kemp, who then was not only running for governor, but ran his own election. He refused to recuse himself or step down. Uh, for example, again, he won by just a little over 50,000 votes. Two years earlier, a group aligned with Stacey Abrams, or mostly a group aligned with civil rights groups, uh, registered 55,000 African-Americans to vote. Uh, all of their addresses are verified. It was solid. It was 55,000 people. And Brian Kemp, for two years, refused to put them on the voting rolls because he said he just didn't have the manpower to do it. And then, like I said, he won the election by 51,000 votes. And those people were not put on the voting rolls. And we don't know if they have been even to this day, frankly. Along the lines of, uh, you know, if there are referees in this game, uh, it seems like with the Supreme Court lost for the present moment and maybe a good long while, it seems like there's very little non-state activism that can be done on a federal level to to restore voting rights to people. Is is that right? Or is... Congress can do this. Congress can pass laws that put some teeth into these things and that um, at least prevent the kind of fraud that we saw in Georgia and Wisconsin and Michigan, Ohio in the last election. And in fact, did pass a law that does a very, very good job of this, mandates paper ballots across the country, mandates uh, auditing of elections, and establishes an absolute right to vote. It's called H.R. 1, House Resolution 1. It was the first piece of legislation passed out of the House of Representatives in the current Congress, which started a year and a half ago when Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House. That bill, which passed the House of Representatives with a good, solid majority, uh, Mitch McConnell is not only refusing to bring to the floor of the Senate, he's refusing to even allow the members of committee who should be you know, the first, first stop to see it. So, I mean, that's that's what's going on. Uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party do not want the, the right to vote extended anywhere in the country, because, like I said, this is if it wasn't for this kind of voter suppression, we would have had President Al Gore and President Hillary Clinton. And frankly, there's at least six or seven Republican members of the Senate and probably between 40 and 70 Republican members of the House of Representatives who are only there 
because of voter suppression in their states, largely the suppression of African-American and Hispanic votes. Take a step back a minute and talk about why you became so interested in in this subject to write a book about it. Was there sort of a a moment, an origin story for this book, or has it just been sort of an accrued uh, interest of yours? Well, I, I've written over the years a couple of books about the commons and and our relationship to the commons, both you know in terms of natural systems and and political systems. And you know, the commons is the stuff that we all collectively own and use. You know, our air, our water, our our uh, public roads, our police departments and fire departments. And you know, one of the debates between left and right uh, typically is where do the commons end and private enterprise begin. You know, should electricity be administered by the cities for the benefit of its people or should it be administered by by uh, Enron, you know, for the benefit of stockholders, those kinds of debates. But the way that we administer the commons in the United States, the way that we take care of our rivers and our air and our uh, air traffic routes and everything else is through government. And the way that we, the people, that you and I define how government is going to administer the commons is by our vote. So uh, you could make a very strong case that of all the commons that there are, the most important is the vote. Uh, it would be the ultimate and last thing that you would ever want to privatize, put into private for-profit hands that may have second or secondary or tertiary motives in addition to making it possible for people to vote. And yet that's exactly what we did in 2002 with the Help America Vote Act. And when we handed almost $6 billion to the states to buy private voting machines from private corporations who tell us what our vote was, but will not allow us to look at the software and will not tell us how they came to those those conclusions. So that's that's been rolling around in my mind for quite a while. And, and I'd written back in the early 2000s after the exit polls showed that um, George W. Bush lost Florida by 30 30 or 40,000 votes. And, and then, you know, we later learned that his brother had thrown 90,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls. And then in 2004, when the Ohio exit polls showed that John Kerry had won Ohio by well over 100,000 votes, and yet the official result was that he lost. I was thinking back then, and I was writing op-eds about how this is probably rigged voting machines. But now what we've learned, I mean, there were 186,000 provisional ballots in Ohio. In other words, people who showed up to vote but we're told, I'm sorry, your name has been removed from the list, but here you can vote on this provisional ballot, not realizing that in red states, provisional ballots are never opened or counted. And uh, so there were more provisional ballots in Ohio in 2004 than the margin by which George Bush beat John Kerry. And over the last decade or so, it's become more and more obvious, and particularly after they admitted it in, in, you know, in arguments before the Supreme Court, that voter suppression is one of the principal Republican strategies for winning elections. I just, you know, I wanted to write a book that just lays this stuff out. If you were to be writing a a thriller like fiction, it seems like a lot of this stuff would feel like a kooky conspiracy theory. Is there, was there a point where you ever had to sort of pull yourself back from, I mean, it, it just seems like it seems so overt, like a lot of the time with things like on our podcast, we talk a lot about trickle down economics and how there's this need to cut regulation and taxes and keep wages low. But that's not there's there's no one singular evil actor, whereas in this case, you can point directly to people and to statements, as you just said, that that is the end goal. Was there ever any moment where you had to remind yourself that you you weren't writing a novel? <laughs> Fiction, yeah. uh, tragically, no. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 
become increasingly apparent. I mean, back in the 70s, the Republican Party was hit with a nationwide uh, injunction, court order, restraining order, uh, preventing them from doing something called caging. The party, not not the governments, but the party used to send postcards into largely black neighborhoods that said, uh, please return this card if you want to vote in the next election. And when people didn't return the cards, the uh, Republican volunteers would stand at the polling places and challenge individual voters. And in fact, this is what William Rehnquist did back in the 60s uh, in Native American and Hispanic communities outside of Phoenix, Arizona. That's how he made his chops in the Republican Party. And he ended up, you know, chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was a big bear of a guy and he would shout very loudly at, at uh, Hispanics and Native Americans that they that they uh, never returned a card. You're not supposed to be, you know, and, and people would just like leave and freak out and stuff. So they got a restraining order against the Republican Party from doing this. And so I thought that was kind of the end of that. Right. But uh, then we discovered that um, they would just come up with a new strategy. You know, they would use the, the Texas felon list and, and say anybody in, in, in Florida who has a similar name to a to a felon in Texas must be a felon from Texas who moved to Florida to vote illegally, which was the rationale that Jeb Bush used. And now it's gotten even more sophisticated than that. They're taking, for example, in the 2016 election, the secretary of state of Georgia, which has a large black population, almost half the state, gave the voting list for Georgia to Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, who did a merge purge and discovered that there were, gee, a whole lot of people that see the, the black name pool and the Hispanic name pools are fairly small. The Hispanic name pool is entirely from Spanish language. The black name pool is pretty much entirely from the English language. And people named after presidents, Jackson, Washington, Jefferson, that's like, you know, 80% of folks named after presidents, Madison's are African-Americans. And so you have this huge crossover, whereas among Caucasians in the United States, you got people with last names that are Greek and Swedish and, you know, Norwegian and, and Russian and Ukrainian, and they're all over the map. So when you take a state with a large black population like Georgia and you compare it to the entire Michigan voting rolls, what happened was, you know, for the 2016 election, um, they threw several hundred thousand people off the voting rolls in Michigan, the majority of them in Flint, Detroit, largely black towns. So, uh, you know, anyhow, as I, as I figured out, you know, that this has gotten more and more sophisticated. And then, and then, of course, they took it to the Supreme Court in the Husted case and defended it. What boggles my mind is that it wasn't until Stacey Abrams in 2016 that the national press paid any attention to this. They've been doing this right out in front of us since 2000. And, and it gets picked up in the, in the political press. But the mainstream press does not talk about this, uh, this election theft by the Republican Party, this systematic election theft. And uh, it, it just blows my mind. Yeah, it's it is interesting. Like I've read uh, Ari Berman's writing on this subject, and uh, but it seems like Stacey Abrams is maybe the right messenger for it. She's a great explainer about about what's gone on. I've seen her speak on it a couple times. Yeah, she's now leading up an organization that's just entirely focused on this. God bless her. I think it's called Fair Fight. Yeah, you do talk about solutions in the book, and uh, I have to say, I live in Washington State, and before I lived here. I used to love on the East Coast, I used to love going to my polling place and voting and getting the, you know, sticker. Um, everybody seems to fetishize mm -hmm. the sticker. I, I was a little reticent about voting by mail at first uh, because of that, because I enjoyed the civic process of it. But um, I have to say, I'm, I'm a total convert now. I don't miss the stickers. I don't miss the polling places. Uh, I love being able to research as I go through my ballot and, and you know, feel like an informed voter. And I, I've been a little bit surprised 
that there has not been more of a bandwagon for vote by mail, even with activists. Uh, it is one one of the solutions you mentioned in your book, but I was wondering, could you could right. you talk about maybe um, why isn't voting by mail being being heralded as more of a solution? I'm not sure. You know, I mean, Oregon did it before you did in Washington. I live in Oregon. And uh, in fact, we lived here back 10, 15 years ago when they first started doing it. And I love it, too. I mean, you know, you get the ballot a few weeks in advance. You got plenty of time to sit down and, and Google people or judges or whatever races that you've never heard of or ballot initiatives. Uh, you know, you can be a genuinely informed voter. You don't feel the pressure of somebody standing in line behind you going, hey, I, you know, I've been here three hours. Hurry up. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you want, uh, you know, civic uh, collaborative activity, you know, show up for a Democratic Party meeting you know, right, or a Republican right. Party meeting if you're a Republican. I mean, you know, there, there's still plenty of opportunities for civic engagement. The only criticism, critique that I've ever heard of vote by mail is that it is possible for people to go around and buy people's ballots and fill them out and mail them in. And this actually happened in the Republican primary in uh, North Carolina in 2016, I believe it was. And the guy got busted for that, you'll recall. Mm -hmm. He was a p party operative. And it also happened rather famously in a, uh, in a precinct in, uh, in London, because pretty much all the voting in the UK is done by mail too, back six, eight years ago. But those are very much the exceptions that prove the rule that that, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it mostly it's just inertia and, of course, Republican opposition. I mean, you in Washington, we in Oregon, we've got voter participation rates that regularly are in the mid 60s to the low 70s, depending on the election. Many parts of the rest of the country, particularly red states, will have voter participation rates that hover around 50 percent. And uh, the Republicans like it that way. Yeah. So, you know, as Paul Wayrick famously said when he was running the Reagan campaign in 1980, he said, uh, you know, uh, about these good government folks, he says, they want everybody to vote. He says, I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by the majority of people. They never have been since the beginning of the republic. And frankly, our leverage in the election goes up as the voting populace goes down. And he was right. And the Republicans know it. Yeah. That was 1980. That's, that's about as plain as you can make it. Yep. So um, aside from voting by mail and aside from supporting uh, Fair Fight, which we mentioned earlier with uh, Stacey Abrams organization, I did want to ask you, you know, what are one or two things that people can support to promote uh, fair voting for everyone? Like what's your what's your favorite solution? Yeah, the single most important thing. And, and just think about this for a minute in Washington state, in Oregon, where I live in Florida, in Texas, pick your state. There's not a single state in the union where the government can say to you, we are going to take your gun away without first going to court. And in some states, even going to court is almost impossible to take your gun away. Um, and thus, they're trying to come up with these red flag laws where if you can prove that somebody is a threat to themselves or others, then you can legally take their gun away. But every state can legally take away your vote and not even tell you. Why is that? I mean, that's insane. Right. It, it's a, it, the government cannot take away your gun, but they can take away your vote. And the vote is how we administer even the right to have a gun. It's <laughs> like this is not. Yeah. We need an explicit right to vote. It needs to be recognized by the Supreme Court. In my opinion, it appears several times in the Constitution. I mean, it does. And, and in my opinion, those those should be uh, law. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court chose to overlook those in 2000 in Bush v. Gore. 
but we need an explicit right to vote and we all need to be working toward that so that if a so that the burden of proof is reversed i mean right now if you're if you live in one of these red states where the republican secretaries of states are aggressively purging people from the voting rolls and your name is taken off the ballot you have to go in and show them your voter registration card that you used to have and show them all your id and prove to them that they took your name off wrong and that you should be on it should be the other way around. They should be coming to us and saying, OK, we're going to remove your name because, of, you know, because you moved or because, of, you know, we think you died or whatever. Um, the burden of proof should be on the government, not on us. Before I let you go, there's there's something we ask all of our guests is is why do you do this work? I do this work because I believe in the in the fundamental decency of humans and the need for us to have a collaborative egalitarian society. And I find that those values strongly held in the Democratic Party and in the progressive movement and the antithesis of those values, the values of oligarchy and monarchy and kleptocracy being held now by the conservative movement, the Republican Party. And it's a matter of you know, wanting to live in a decent world and wanting my children and grandchildren to uh, to have the space to live in a not just a decent world, but you know now with the threat of climate change and uh, a survivable world, I think this is like really important stuff to be doing, and I'm really honored and and happy that throughout my life I've had the ability and the privilege to be able to to engage in this kind of work. It's uh, you know, it's God's work, and I mean that you know both literally and figuratively. <laughs> Well, and and this book is just, I think, an incredible resource for people, and I think it'll it'll introduce it to a lot of people because it's such a compelling and well-told story, uh, even if the story is kind of a nightmare. So thank you for writing it. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.